Welcome to the Wonder of It All podcast, where we are learning how to live in the sacredness of wonder. Thank you for listening. My name is Angela, and here's your host, my dad, Ben Brewster. Take it away, Dad. Hey, 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 everybody, and welcome back to the Wonder of It All podcast. Another episode, another chance to dig into the annals of religious history in the United States of America. Now, if you go back in the history of this podcast, you'll see that season one dealt with particularly mental health issues. That That's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And so I wanted to, to have some people on uh, to show the resources that were out there and also to convey to people who are listening uh, that you're not alone if, if you're struggling with with such, such matters. Uh, now we've kind of gone into the direction of history. Now, this is uh, something that is also near and dear to my heart. I, I went to graduate school, uh, came out with a master's in history. Uh, I love history, uh, and I particularly love to know how we got to where we are today, particularly from a religious viewpoint. So I've said before, I've grown up in the Churches of Christ. Uh, it's where I've spent my entire life. And so I wanted to know more about the history of of how did we get to where we are today, the good and the bad and the ugly? Because you know when you dig into history, you find really cool things that you want to share with all your friends. You want to post on Facebook or, or Twitter or Snapchat or, or Instagram, and you want to put it out there. But then you uncover some things that you hope nobody ever learns about your family tree because it's embarrassing. But it's still part of our family tree. And that's kind of how I view the history of the Churches of Christ. There are things that I think are absolutely amazing and wonderful. And then there are things where I just hang my head and think, oh, this is I, I, I'm ashamed of this. But it's all part of the history. And, and we can't exclude one part and gloss over another part. Uh, not if we're going to have integrity in telling the story. We, we need to tell the complete story. So the last few weeks, we've been looking at some key personalities. Two weeks ago, we looked at a, an incredible, stirring, influential minister by the name of T.B. Larimore, uh, who did primarily his ministry in the American South before moving uh, to California. Now, Larimore uh, got into ministry after the Civil War. He continued his ministry until early in the, uh, the 20th century. We also looked at last week a guy named James O'Kelly. And in particular, we honed in on the 1790s period when O'Kelly, as a, as a minister in the Methodist Church, led a break from the Methodist Church at a convention in 1792. And we looked at what O'Kelly did and how it helped to frame the religious landscape uh, in this country. But particularly his influence was North Carolina, Virginia, but he was able to make contact with some other like-minded individuals in the New England states who were also advocating a, a reformation. And sometimes we use the term reformation, sometimes we use restoration, and reformation is, is this sense that the church is, is always reforming, right? Ecclesia semper reformanda is, is a Latin phrase, the church is always reforming. But then there was this sense of restoration of that the church has gotten off track and how do we restore 
the original vision of the church that that Jesus established that we we all read about in the New Testament, uh, uh, particularly in in the book of of Acts. And so we're we're looking at personalities as we uncover this. And today we're going to look at an incredible personality. Uh, his name was Barton Warren Stone. And what O'Kelly is doing over in North Carolina, what Abner Jones and Elias Smith are doing up in New England, and William Guyrie, I forgot to mention him, who we talked about last week, is also in the Mid-Atlantic area. Barton Stone is advocating similar things in Kentucky. But how did Barton Stone get there? And what was going on in the country at that at this time that facilitated, that created an atmosphere where such revival and reformation and even restoration was able not only to take place, but to grow rapidly in popularity. We want to look at all of those things today in this episode. So the major themes that were developing during this time in the country, and and keep in mind we're talking uh, the early uh, 19th century, I want to recommend a resource to you if you're interested in in learning more. Nathan Hatch has an incredible book called The Democratization of American Christianity. I think you can get it on Amazon for $29 or wherever you buy books. Uh, Used bookstores should have it. Uh, But it really outlines some of the major themes that I'm just going to briefly skirt by uh, in this episode today. But it's a wonderful resource. I encourage you to get it, uh, because he really delves into what's going on in every denomination. Francis Asbury with the Methodists, James O'Kelly with the Republican Methodists, John Leland with the American Baptists, uh, Richard Allen with the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and and Joseph Smith with the Mormons. He he covers a, a wide range in, in telling the story, so I encourage you to get that. So, so here are some of the factors or the religious themes that were happening uh, during this time, and, and I'm borrowing from um, Nathan Hatch. Uh, the first one is there's a shift from seeking conversions to movement building. So we might say a, an old word for seeking conversions is proselytizing or evangelism is is more of a current American term uh, where we're trying to convert people, we might say, to the gospel. We're converting people to Jesus. We're, we're asking people to, to repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus, and to become a Christian and follow Jesus. Well, we see a shift during this time from an emphasis on evangelism to building, to movement building, to kind of um, building up the infrastructure of a particular movement. Who are the Methodists going to be? Who are the Baptists going to be? Uh, who's the who's the AME church going to be? Who are the Mormons going to be? And for the churches that were loosely affiliated with the American Restoration Movement, this question also loomed large. Another thing that happened during this time was the rise of mass literature. Ever since the creation of the printing press, uh, we've seen uh, literature being used to to spread uh, a person's faith. And, and so this is going to be a major issue. We looked at this last week with um, Elias Smith, who had the first ever re- religious journal published in uh, the United States, and and how copies of that journal reached people in the O'Kelly movement, and a connection was made because of that. Uh, a third uh, factor, we see the um, we see a social gospel emerge 
which blends Christianity and democracy. And within this blending, we see a desire to establish a, quote, Christian America. And that's going to continue to be a major factor. And we see this even today. Uh, You've heard people talk about nationalism. Uh, They're they're hitting on this very theme, and and it continues to influence Christianity in this country. Uh, Number four, an opposition to current denominational identity. People wanted to shrug off labels. That was one of the things that was so appealing about the American Restoration Movement and this idea that let's just be Christians and and do away with all other titles. People liked that. People liked a very simple identity that's solely connected to Jesus and not anything else. And that leads to the fifth factor, which was rebellion against tradition. I guess you could say uh, the, the early proponents and pioneers of the American Restoration Movement were rebels in every sense of the term. They they rebelled against the establishment. They rebelled against the status quo. They rebelled against the current organized religious structures, and they wanted to just be Christians only. And a lot of people, that appealed to a lot of people during that time. And then there was a search for foundation and authority. So are we going to find our authority, our foundation in the writings of people? Or is there something that else that we can base? And so that's why there was this call to go back to the Bible and make the Bible uh, our only creed. Now, during this time, there's also an incredible emphasis on the idea of liberty. Because we see this in the political arena. Give me liberty, give me death, right? You've heard that. But we're seeing this growing belief within Christianity, particularly the Restoration Movement, that every person has the right to interpret the Bible for themselves. All of these factors contribute to a rise of a movement in the United States of America that continues to this day. And that leads us to Barton Warren Stone, because he becomes a prime person in this movement. In fact, I call it the American Restoration Movement. Some people prefer to call it the Stone-Campbell Movement, a reference to Barton Stone and to Alexander Campbell, uh, who will come later. Barton Stone, though, was born December 24, 1772, in Port Tobacco, Maryland. Now, his father died when Stone was probably about three years old, uh, so early tragedy in his life. Uh, He grew up attending Baptist and Methodist churches, and he saw how they fought over issues, and it soured Stone on religion in general. And, and he, he decided that he wanted nothing to do with religion. Well, in 1790, he enrolls at David Caldwell's Academy, uh, which was located in Guilford, uh, North Carolina. And his plan was to become a lawyer. It's interesting that during this time of his life, Stone had a somewhat hostile attitude toward anything religious. He didn't want to be a part of the religious debates and the divisions. It turned him off to religion entirely. But one night, a roommate invited him to a revival meeting featuring a preacher named James McGreedy. 
McGreedy was, um, he's what we would call a hellfire and damnation preacher. You know, pound the pulpit, a uh, lot of screaming, shouting, that kind of thing, um, terrifying people into becoming Christians. Well, the preaching, they had an effect on Stone. And he, he became scared, and so he began to pray to God, and he waited for God to give him a sign that he was one of the elect. Now, that may sound strange, depending on what your, your religious background is, but there was a thought, uh, and, and, and still in some circles, that God would make it clear to a person if that person was one of the saved, that God has a certain uh, group of people who are what are called the elect, the saved people. And so really, there's not a whole lot you can do to save yourself. You just have to hope that you're one of the elect. And so Stone responds. He prays. He's waiting for God to give him a sign, and he doesn't receive any kind of sign from God. And he becomes despondent. At the moment, he was willing to give God another chance. He gets let down. Well, in 1793, Stone heard another preacher speak, a guy named William Hodge. And Hodge's style was polar opposite of James McGreedy. McGreedy, Hellfire and Damnstone, or Hellfire and Damnstone, Damnation. Hodge preached about the love of God. That message resonated with Stone. In fact, Stone writes about his conversion in this way after hearing Hodge preach about the love of God. I yielded and sunk at his feet, talking about God, a willing subject. I loved him. I adored him. I praised him aloud in the silent night, in the echoing grove around. I confessed to the Lord my sin and folly in disbelieving his word so long and in following so long the devices of men. I now saw that a poor sinner was as much authorized to believe in Jesus at first as at last, that now was the accepted time and day of salvation. This notion, this belief that anybody can respond to the gospel is one that will will define Stone's ministry the rest of his life. As a result of his conversion, he decides to become a minister in the Presbyterian Church. But to do that, you have to be, a person has to be licensed by a local presbytery in order to preach. So Stone received his license, but he was not yet ordained, so he couldn't baptize or preside at the communion. Stone is recognized as a preacher, but not an ordained preacher. He begins to teach at a school directed by Hope Hull. Now, this is a little interesting because Hope Hull had been present with James O'Kelly at the famous Methodist Convention in Baltimore in 1792. We talked about that last week. Well, Stone was finally ordained October 4th, 1798. Now, during this ordination, he's asked a question, as all candidates were. Do you receive and adopt the confession of faith as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Bible? 
Of course, the Confession of Faith here is the Westminster Confession of Faith, which the Presbyterians adopted about 1788, so it was still kind of relatively new. And every candidate for ordination was asked this question. Do you receive and adopt the Confession of Faith as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Bible? Listen to Stone's answer. I do, as far as I see it consistent with the Word of God. Now, the records of this proceeding do not contain all of Stone's response, simply that he answered in the affirmative. But notice his conviction in this moment. He is willing to accept the Westminster Confession of Faith as long as in his eyes he sees it as consistent with the Word of God. So here is Stone laying down the Bible as his authority and conveying in his response at ordination that he's not going to forsake that authority. Well, somewhere around 1798, 1799, about the time that Stone got ordained, revival breaks out in Logan County, Kentucky, under the preaching of a guy named James McGreedy. We talked about him earlier, remember? The Hellfire Damnation preacher. So this massive revival is happening uh, in Logan County, Kentucky. Now, at this time, Stone is working with the Concord and the Cane Ridge congregations uh, as their minister. So he's up in Bourbon, in Bourbon Kentucky, which uh, not too far from Lexington. Well, the revivals begin to spread all over the state of Kentucky, and they grow so great in attendance. Uh, numbers in, in the early 1800s uh, talk about ministers from the Baptists and Methodists joining the Presbyterians. Uh, so not only did you have a large group of people gathering for these revivals, you, you see preachers from different denominational backgrounds preaching at the same revival. Well, Stone hears what's happening. And one thing that got Stone's attention was there was a presence of what was termed religious exercises at these revivals, things that we don't normally see, charismatic manifestations, um, and we're going to get into that in, in just a moment. But Stone wanted to investigate what was happening. So he travels to Logan County in 1801. He saw the religious exercises, and he could not explain what he saw. He thought some of it was fanaticism, but he refused to deny that God was working. So Stone goes back to Bourbon County, and guess what? The revival follows him. In August 1801, the biggest single revival in the history of America took place at an out-of-the-way spot called Cane Ridge. Historians estimate the attendance to be anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000. Now, to put this in perspective, the largest city in Kentucky at the time, Lexington, was only population of 2,000. The preaching at Cane Ridge lasted from six to seven nights, and the revival probably ended because of food shortage. Uh, they didn't have, a, couldn't dismiss for lunch or dinner and say, okay, go into town, get something to eat. Um, it was a much different culture than today. But what was also present at this revival and what 
Stone could not explain, but he did not deny, was the presence of some incredible religious exercises. These exercises included people suddenly falling, jerking. I heard one account of people, imagine someone keeping their feet on the ground and jerking back enough where if they had long hair, it would touch the ground behind them and jerking forward where it looked like they were going to hit their forehead while keeping their, their feet on the, on the ground. Barking. This happened a lot of times in conjunction with the jerking. Uh, dancing. Although Stone noticed that this only seemed to happen among believers. Because, you know, there were people that attended these who weren't believers. Laughing. Stone described this as a solemn laughter. And he noticed it seemed to only happen among believers. Running and, and singing which isn't too crazy of a thing. It just depends how that's done, I guess. So all of this is happening. What's amazing is that these religious exercises took place during Cane Ridge, and once Cane Ridge was over, uh, they seemed to vanish. Uh, Stone uh, talks about this some because he continued to preach in the area for years afterwards, and these religious exercises disappeared. Well, what created... This joyous celebration at Cane Ridge with so many tens of thousands of people in attendance, ministers from a variety of different denominations coming together. And, and so you can imagine they would preach on tree stumps and, and you'd have one preacher over in this section preaching, another one over in this area preaching. It, this was going on simultaneously the whole time of the revival. But by 1803... All these religious exercises connected with Cain Ridge had come to an end. And that joyous celebration was now met with an assault by the leaders of the Presbyterian Church in Kentucky. They began to question the integrity of the, the, the preachers who preached at Cain Ridge. They questioned the doctrinal content of their sermons. In fact, the local presbytery had opposed the event at Cane Ridge and had grown suspicious of particularly five ministers who were connected uh, to the Cane Ridge revival. Martin Stone, Robert Marshall, Richard McNamara, John Dunlavy, and John Thompson. The reason for suspicion was the preaching of these men who taught that anyone could respond to the salvation that's found in Jesus, that you didn't have to have a sign from God that you were one of the elect. Well, the Presbytery first targeted Richard McNamara. And in 1803, his case came before the recently formed Synod of Kentucky. Now, during this time, one of the other ministers, Thompson, was also implicated. And the question was now about bringing these men to trial to stand trial as heretics. So this question prompted a meeting between Stone and the other ministers who were under attack by the presbytery because if they're going to charge two of these guys with, with heresy, what's going to happen to the other three? And the result was that all five preachers 
withdrew from the jurisdiction of the Synod. And they proclaimed this action in a written protest. Now, the importance of this protest cannot be cannot be underestimated. As historian Leroy Garrett pointed out, it proclaims the right of free men to interpret the scriptures for themselves and to base their faith upon the Bible alone apart from the opinions of men. So several things resulted from this departure from the Synod. And the first was the formation of the Springfield Presbytery by the five preachers. However, uh, this presbytery would only last one year before its dissolution when these ministers made an incredible proclamation about Christian unity. Even though these ministers had withdrawn from the Presbyterian Synod of Kentucky and, and formed what they called their own presbytery, the Springfield Presbytery, they saw a much bigger picture, and they knew that they had to dissolve the Springfield Presbytery in order for the bigger picture to come about. So they wrote, We will that this body die, be dissolved, and sink into union with the body of Christ at large. For there is but one body and one spirit even as we are called in one hope of our calling. This incredible dedication, emphasis on unity. And they realized, even though they had constructed something that was good, that that needed to die and sink into the larger body of Christ because that was more important. The second thing that was very influential during this time was they printed what they called the Apology of the Springfield Presbytery. Now, Apology is, is kind of, um, don't be misled by that. They're not apologizing. Apology is used in the sense of a defense. You're defending something that people are criticizing. And in this Apology, they wrote about the reasons why they had chosen to leave the Synod of Kentucky and the Presbyterian Church. And a third result during all of this, and what these five ministers do is, they shrug off man-made identifications, labels, and they agree to embrace the name Christian only. Now, when Stone conveyed his reasons for taking such actions, he was giving us some insight into understanding not only his personality, but why he would take such a fierce stance later against anyone who opposed the efforts at restoration. He writes, Thus to the cause of truth I sacrificed the friendship of two large congregations and an abundant salary for the support of myself and family. I preferred the truth to the friendship and kindness of my associates in the Presbyterian ministry who were dear to me and tenderly united in the bonds of love. I preferred honesty and a good conscience to all these things. Another influence on Stone was during this time was the mentality of people who settled on the frontier. Uh, people who were moving, expanding westward, 
uh, were very independent, and this affected Stone greatly, and he shared their love of independence and their love of liberty, and he shared uh, their resistance to any kind of uh, authority. He believed that Christian unity could happen among people of common faith united by a common objective. So a document that came forth from the Springfield Presbytery that is still important today is the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. And in this document, not only do the men explain why they chose to leave the Presbytery, but they also set forth some teachings that will become crucial to the what becomes known as the Christian movement, the Stone Movement in Kentucky. And three basic ideas stand out, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing from historian James North. The first one is Christian unity. The second one is exclusive biblical authority. And the third one is local congregational autonomy. The men who signed the document were Marshall, Dunlavey, McNamara, Thompson, Stone, and an elder at the Cane Ridge Church named David Provience. In 1804, these six men stood united, firmly grounded in the truth of the teachings of the Bible, fully convinced that their union would continue to help spread the good news of Christ. Yet one year later, their unity would be threatened and ultimately torn asunder, due in large part to the arrival of a group known as the Shakers. We'll talk more about them next time. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a great week. Keep living in the wonder that exists all around us. And until next week, take care.